Identity sits at the heart of so many conflicts in our world, from the Middle East to Russia and Ukraine, to the rise of political populism in Europe and the United States. In part two of our interview with renowned theologian Miroslav Volf from Yale University's Divinity School, we explore identity, faith, and what it means to remember history rightly. You know, there are many elements of remembering rightly. My own work on this was triggered by this sense that we often have and that we hear often publicly, and namely when something horrible have happened, we will never forget. Mm. Or I will forgive, but I will never forget. Indeed, I, th- I think I, it was once said that to forget is to bury the victims twice, that we need to hold on to the memory. Exactly right. And at the same time, and 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 there is an important truth in, in that claim, as you have now formulated it. Elie Wiesel uh, is the one who mm. also emphasized just that. At the same time, I have noticed that when we remember, our memories often serve to motivate violence against others. You can say that it's the memory that has been a motive behind, in case of Serbia, attack on uh, and, and beginning of the war. You can say also that it was it's the memory that, in a sense, motivates Putin in his action, where he spoke about the sense of identity and connection with with history. So this nefarious side of memory is what what was then uh, started worrying me, and I sensed it in myself. I was remembering and remembering turned into being then into kind of a feeding the the sense of a need for revenge, and to me that needed to be undercut, and that's what I think about or describe as remembering rightly, rather than simply remembering. Can anger and resentment, though, have its place, that resentment and anger can be a virtue that can inspire us to action? You could make a claim, couldn't you, that what we saw in the United States with Martin Luther King Jr.'s civil rights movement, um, seeded in, in love and forgiveness, but emerging out of a very deep and righteous sense of anger. I agree with you. The the sense of anger as a kind of emotional stance of standing for justice and against wrongdoing that has been perpetrated. I think that's a that's a completely not just understandable but but actually morally responsible uh, stance of beings that are not simply minds but are also souls and hearts. Uh, so um, righteous anger seems to me right. But at the same time, there are forms of anger that consume one and that seek to release themselves in excesses and that uh, paint the pictures of the other in such a way that I am no longer able to even consider them as human and worthy of any any embrace. And it's this kind of anger that we need to struggle against. But the anger, just as we want to affirm justice, so we want to affirm the emotional stance that then fire that, that pushes us in order to seek justice. That I think is all true and also very important. But how do we not become misled in the search for revenge? What does it mean then to remember in such a way that I can direct my agency, that I can direct my emotional stances in such a way that this other person is not dehumanized, 
but that I can struggle for the right while at the same time affirming their humanity and seeking to do what we are all called to do for one another, namely to love each other. When, when we talk about love and forgiveness and remembering rightly and forgetting, it does raise the very difficult question about absolving the perpetrator, that in effect the perpetrator gets off too lightly. How do we not, in the effort to forgive, rush to absolve the perpetrator? I think that's a very important question. One is, I think the perpetrator needs to receive forgiveness. And receiving means repenting. Receiving means also restoring. Restitution is a very important part of the whole process of forgiveness. But when it comes to memory, my sense is that we need to write kind of remembering in order to motivate us to act with justice and with, with seeking forgiveness. But that memory is really an essential element of forgiveness itself. I cannot forgive what I have not remembered. And the sense of forgetting, sense of, and I almost like better the term not remembering, mm. <laughs> because forgetting has something active in it, as if I decide, okay, I'm going to forget now. But that doesn't seem to me either plausible that I can just do that, or in any ways healthy. Well, it's a very Way Nietzschean I, idea that we are better off without history, but we cannot live without our history, can we? Exactly. We cannot, and we should not live without our history. But what, what I have in mind, at the end of a successful journey of forgiveness. And that's applicable primarily in interpersonal relationships. There is a certain kind of forgetting, and that's forgetting that is almost like not holding the wrongdoing as part of our operational memory. It can be still on our hard drive, and it, I'm sure if we have a moment and we want to reflect back on it, we can always remember that. But when I see the face of the others, I don't have a wrongdoer stamped on their forehead, right? That's what I mean, almost like a backgrounding of memory. And that is predicated on successful process of forgiveness, reception of forgiveness, and healing. Once that happens, then I think we can be in a space in which we can act toward one another in a kind of reconciled way. Of course, if uh, some wrongdoing happens, I will be tempted and probably will have right to reach back to my hard drive and look a little bit there and, and remember and therefore protect myself, protect others from possible harm that, that comes. But if I simply insist, I'll forgive, but I'll always keep that in mind uh, as I, when I relate to you, I really, in my judgment, have not forgiven fully. I have always reserved unforgiveness, and that is um, sometimes necessary, but hopefully in many cases not useful and uh, harmful exercise. Miroslav, why is identity so important to us in the world? 
You know, it's hard for us to be each on our own when each on our own, simply as individual, especially bombarded from so many sides by varieties of claims and interests. We are swept by the winds. We don't belong. We don't have any weight. And there is this unbearable lightness of our being. And we often then seek our own sense of ourselves in belonging to more stable groups. Is this then a failure of the promise of liberalism and democracy, which was a type of weightlessness, a freedom from history, a freedom of the individual to find their own place in the world? Is what we are seeing in the blowback against that, whether it be the white supremacist, whether it be the radical Islamist, whether it be the the Mm. movements like Black Lives Matter or whatever they may be, coming from a sense of exclusion, coming from a sense of anger in some cases or resentment in others, a sense of trying to reclaim a sense of greatness as well. Does that go to a weakness, a failure of liberalism itself? I think so. And it's not just liberalism, it's kind of the the way of life that underpins liberalism, the erosion of communities or erosion of family, erosion of any form of relatively stable, but at the same time, flexible ties that characterize dynamic lives of communities. Once that is lost, we're looking for some kind of an anchor. And I think unless we find such anchors, if we operate in the context of uh, liberal democracies, simply with, with a kind of cosmopolitan individualism, I don't think it will be sufficient for us to have a sense of our humanity and sense of belonging. And we will always be exposed then to the threats of such uh, hardened identities that feed from from hatred, that need differentiation from others in order to be themselves. You've talked about identities that are porous, where we open ourselves up to each other, and yet at the same time, we hold on to those things that are important to us. In the secular liberal world that you've outlined and critiqued, what is the role of faith as providing the glue for those porous identities and building a world of forgiveness and love and peace. Well, that's what I would hope, uh, that Christian uh, churches, uh, other communities of faith, that's the kind of role I hope that they could have. But you've also in, said in, that they often fail and, and, and contribute they, to the sort of hardened identities that we see in the world. They do. And unfortunately, there is no foolproof <laughs> a way to live one's faith. That's part and parcel of faith because it's part and parcel of us as human, free human beings. I wouldn't want faiths that cannot fail in many ways, right? They would be a stifling armor that would be inhumane. So the failure of faiths, in a sense, is built into them. And we have to look into forms of faith that contribute more to such failure. And that's the job of folks like myself, like the theologians, to think about those things, or maybe saints to live faith in a way that is compelling. At the same time, I think faiths have resources to anchor us in something that is unchanging and yet uh, and untranscendent, transcendent in the best sense of the term, something that we cannot fully grasp, but something on which we can, we can rely to move into the future so that we can live with hope. How does one live a hopeful lives? That's one of the great challenges mm. that we have because hope is not living 
towards something that I know exactly that it's going to uh, going to happen. Hope is being open to the darkness of the future, which I don't know, and nonetheless being able to move toward it with confidence. And that kind of stance, I think, uh, certainly as a Christian, I would say, that kind of stance is stance of hope. Mm. We hope for what we do not see. There's certain kind of darkness, and nonetheless, there's certain confidence to move in that way. We can need not control everything that's around us, and future, we can we can trust in many ways that future will come out of God's hands. Miroslav Wolf, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you again for giving us your time. It was wonderful to speak to you. Those are important topics, and thank you for wrestling with them. Miroslav Wolf, Professor of Systematic Theology at Yale University Divinity School in the U.S.